Here we go, September 21st, uh, 2014, lecture discussion number 169 on the book of Romans. And as I was writing this, I wrote, we are headed today towards the core rebellion. Well, we're not. We're supposed to be headed today towards the core rebellion. And the reason for that is the hope that it will uh, shine some light on the stealing of this beautiful garment by Achan and the dead 36. It's in Joshua 5, 6, 7, and 8, and probably all the way through Joshua 10 and 11. So that's where we are. And ultimately, I'm trying to add some depth of understanding to the meaning of Jacob's limp. Jacob wrestles with God, and Jacob comes up limping. What does that mean? And the, re- the way we're trying to solve that is by finding those things that uh, lend uh, extra pieces of information. I realize this is a molasses-type process. It's necessarily slow, so and slow both. Though that may be of little consolation to those of you who are traveling along with me here. It is required at times, I know this, to drive stakes in the ground to see if we can detect any progress and uh, go by the sun shadows. And today is one of those kind of days. I ended up uh, last Sunday, Lecture 168, by pointing out that the Battle of Jericho, which is getting us to Joshua's lament and his garment, so I've, I've got a bunch of things here. I've skipped Moses, Joshua's lament, and his and the garment that comes into play for him. The beautiful garment. Can't repeat enough that when God calls something beautiful, when he says it's a beautiful garment, or if there is something listed as a beautiful garment, that any garment that is described as beautiful is uh, clearly going to take us towards the, the blood of Christ at some point. But I pointed out that this battle at Jericho has a tribulational connection. What I mean by that, if you want to find out what the tribulation will be like, you can start out with the battle of Jericho. It will give you information. It prefigures the revelationary events. And and we have this dead 36. I recognize that there's a couple of folks here that haven't been here, and I doubt that you listen on the Internet like everybody else does. But... uh, there are 36 men die in the subsequent battle after Jericho. And whenever you see 36, you know that, for example, the sum of those numbers, 1 plus 2, oops, plus 2, plus 3, plus 4, plus 25, plus 26, uh, plus 34, plus 35, plus 36, the sum of that equals 666. That's not an accident. So when you go back and read... Uh, plus, I have three sixes, which also three sixes, if you will, six, six, six. That's the Bible's way of telling you that there's something involved with those dead 36 that has a relationship to the tribulation, specifically the Antichrist. So that's another reason that it prefigures uh, the uh, revelationary events. And the dead 36, as I said, uh, the Bible identifies them as having an Antichrist motive. So if you read that story then that will help you understand what it is, and you won't make a mistake thinking that God killed Achan's children, for example. And uh, We've covered that before. Achan stole and hid a beautiful garment, and he buried it, in fact, which is why that we'll be adding uh, Matthew 25, 24 through 30 uh, to our to-do list. And what that is, of course, is the uh, 
um, Christ has a parable of talents where one of the men that prefigures the Antichrist buries what he is given and declares God to be evil. And so there is all kinds of things connected together. Uh, whenever you bury something, you end up in Matthew 25. And as you know, someone, I said this last week uh, in the post game. I didn't put it in the lecture. I wasn't sure I was going to, but I've decided I go ahead and will, unless someone finds out. <coughs> Excuse me. As you know, in the book of Revelation, with the rise of the Antichrist, one of the things that he does is declare himself to be God. And the whole world believes him. The only people that don't believe he's hunting down, and, uh, attempting to kill. So he is so powerful and so dramatic that when he stands up and says, I am God, everyone believes him. And he has signs and wonders that makes that uh, a possibility for them. And that is the same as putting on, if you will, a beautiful garment and declaring himself to be God himself or uh, outside of time, outside of death. So you, you see that, this beautiful garment element here in Joshua telling us also to look towards Revelation. And those who do worship the Antichrist, um, they will all perish. That's his plan. His plan is to get you to worship him and so that you perish. And he knows at all times what he's doing in my estimation, or not my estimation, I'm convinced of that. His intelligence requires that he's not going to delude himself. He's going to deceive others. Eventually, the Antichrist gets a large army, as you know, Battle of Armageddon. It goes out to kill Israel. And the true Christ comes, and he comes to end the wicked one. And the true Christ then forever, Jesus Christ, forever exposes the lie that is the Antichrist. All of what the lie that he says entails. It's the, I call it the fivefold lie of Satan. Um, and we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But that lie is forever exposed and it will no more stand and no more be told. He ends the lie as well as ending the wickedness and the wicked ones. Is it raining now? My. Did you know that summer is over? Did you know that the roof here does not hold does not shed water? That's some serious rain. That's pretty impressive. Well, Lori's outside with uh, seven or eight kids. That should be great. Let's lock the doors. Anyway, all of that to say that Israel Christ will come. He will end the wicked one. He will end the lie. He calls the Antichrist, by the way, the lie. He also calls somebody in uh, or, or the evil. He also calls somebody in Scripture the evil. So you can identify um, who he is talking about, who God is talking about when he says those things. But eventually, Israel is saved and restored, and everyone will know who Jesus Christ really is. That's the problem we have today. People don't know who Jesus Christ really is. And the churches don't say who he really is, because that's divisive. 
You don't make money going out and saying, Jesus Christ is God himself. I was at a wedding, you might know. I see that some of you from the wedding were here. What did I say at the wedding? Jesus Christ is God himself. I do it all the time because I know people don't hear it. And if you don't understand that, if you think Jesus Christ is somehow just a nice person that God pats on the head or somebody that he throws a little power at every now and then and then takes it back and, and he's just a good person, a little less than the angels maybe, but a little higher than man. If that's your view, you have this weak Christ view, then you're just horribly wrong. He is God, creator God, always creator God. There's never a time he's not the most powerful God, the Lord God Almighty. If you do that, then you're way ahead of, I would say, I hazard to guess, 99% of all Christians in this country. It's bad. Everyone has this anthropomorphic position on Christ. They, they attach their own weaknesses to him. He he is omnipotent God. You start there, you have a chance. There are those in the in the rainstorm that figured something out. Do you know what it was? They left their windows rolled down. That's what I suspect. And now they have plastic bags over their heads running for their cars. You are the wise. Congratulations. You live in Alaska a long time. Oops, there's more. <laughs> No, no, going for coffee. Nice, nice move. If you're going to slip out and roll your windows up. Very nice. <laughs> okay. Hidden inside now then, the literally true, it really happened, Battle of Jericho, where the walls fell and all of this, the elements that are there, those are, those portray coming events at the, of the time of Jacob's Trouble. Now that's very important. God calls uh, the the tribulation. He calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, which is why I want to figure out Jacob's limp. After he wrestles with Christ, he comes up limping. Why? What's it mean? And we've that, again we've gone to Joshua and Moses trying to figure it out because they also have a similar event in their lives, and by connecting the three similar events, maybe we can figure them all out. <sighs> so that having a working understanding of Jacob becomes valuable. He's an extraordinary symbol. He's an extraordinary type. He is uh, a symbol, and he's even called. His name is changed to Israel. He is a type of Israel. So I can now, now that we have a nation of Israel that actually exists, has only existed since 1948. So you guys that are younger, you are looking at a nation of Israel for the first time for thousands of years. When it happened, everyone was so excited. They thought, this is it. We're coming to the end. This is the time of the end of the age of the Gentiles that started in 586 B.C. Now there's a nation of Israel again. No, you can't count the Roman Empire times because Israel, though they had a rebellion uh, uh, and such, it, uh, they really had no control over their country. Rome did. Now they have control or some, some uh, significant control for sure.
Obviously, we have the West Bank in Gaza and other parts. The point is, is that Jacob in the Bible is a symbol of Israel. He even is called Israel. Israel is named after him. And so I have this person and I have the nation. I can study the person and figure out what's going to happen to the nation at the end of the age of the Gentiles, which I absolutely am convinced we are in. And once you've got that, now it's very helpful to read Romans 9, Romans chapter 9, as you know, where he says something about Jacob and something about Esau that hardly anybody understands today. But before we continue walking slowly um, or walking barely, I got a bit of a diversion. Uh, I got a little, uh, I used to do this all the time. I used to draw a rabbit when I would go on rabbit trails. And everybody would say, well, that's the tail and that's the head. It's not. The way it works, this is the head. I just don't draw the rest of the rabbit. See, the rabbit was doing what? He was beating on a drum. He was the ever-ready bat rabbit. Isn't that beautiful? You actually know that's a rabbit. If I hadn't told you, would you have known? That's about 50-50. Yeah, keep the day job. I have no artistic capability. But I, uh, that's where we're headed now, is because it came to my attention. This is a diversion for fun. And as I started writing it, I started just kept writing. So this is, uh, yes, I'll be ranting here in a minute. It came to my attention this week that the national media went into one of their frenzies. And they went into a frenzy over an NFL running back who apparently beat his four-year-old son, a four-year-old boy, uh, aggressively, to say the least. It's an obvious criminal act. You're beating a four-year-old child. That is a criminal act. And we have in our society this kind of criminal, violent thinking now. This, this, I don't know. Maybe it's my own experience. When I was a young man, people didn't beat children to the point of putting them into the hospital at age four. We didn't have, we didn't have the death of children from beating, crying babies. Nobody thought it was a good idea to beat a crying baby. That was so stupid. There was nobody who thought that. Now, I don't know what's happening. Well, I do know what's happening to our society. We, we, we have criminal violence within our society now at a very different level. As you know, I taught school. I remember when the first fist fight became a knife fight. I saw it. It happened at West High School on the very end of the school. Two guy, one guy chased another guy who was prepared for him, pulled a knife and cut him badly, almost killed him. I saw a knife fight at a dance. Uh, one guy bumped into another guy, and that guy fought him, pushed him around, was choking him, and a knife came out, and there was a death there. So I saw that transition. We went from fist fights, guys would just kind of punch each other and Whoever got the better of the other guy, there was mercy, if you follow what I'm saying. Now there's no mercy. Uh, fist fights have been replaced by gunfights now. Just go to Chicago. It's, it's ridiculous. You, you, you take your hand, your life in your hands when you go to these cities where the, there is no morality at all. And this rapid escalation 
Okay. Everybody in Anchorage has a gun. There are guns in this church right now. There are people who come here armed every time we have a lecture. Is that a good idea? Yes, it is. We have people who are highly skilled, professionally trained, that uh, recognize what's happening to our society. Alaska is still relatively quiet, comparative. But we have this rapid escalation occurring. Thus, it's not surprising to see this increase in intensity made manifest in our marriages and in our families now. It's quite predictable, frankly. And for all, for, for, and now what we have in this country is a completely useless media. That's a new thing in the last 25, 30 years. Completely useless media that can't fathom how a culture which is just marinated in violence, the movies are violent, the uh, television, what you see, I'm looking at a bunch of young people here today, what you see at your age was not on TV when I was there, and I'm not that old. It was not there. What you see in the movies was not in the movies. And our culture is marinated in profanity and violence and intoxicants and immorality. We have cities and states now thinking that we don't have enough intoxicated people. We're going to legalize more intoxicants. And I said a few weeks ago, it never occurred to me to be intoxicant and unattractive simultaneously. It never did. But that was a bad idea. But uh, we can't seem to get enough intoxication. Brain damage seems to be a poor strategy to me. But this, this level that we have, that the media can't understand how this culture got this way, um, is going to result in this vicious beating and killing of children on a regular basis. And the media wail now. What could be causing this? This beating of innocent children. And, and I suggest that it might be our thinly veiled billion dollar eugenics industry where we spend, uh, that is one of the largest, most profitable businesses that you can imagine. Note to the media. No one cares what you think and what you say anymore. The media is so dumb, intentionally, willfully stupid. They are the dumbest, stupidest people in every room the media walks into now. And certainly the least respected. I I, I would first believe the words of a carnival barker before the insipid, insipid, sycophantic, corrupt, national, mainstream press, which is really the East Coast press. They control it. And that, by the way, includes the sports networks. They're also completely corrupt and clueless. And they're so invested in, in their godless political agenda, they neither seek the truth nor recognize truth if they blundered across it, and they don't. The sports is now secondary. All you had to do was listen this week. You could not find a sports channel that did not cover political thought processes. And all those thought processes... Are godless. And obviously, I'm in a ranting, you know, one guy wrote me one time and said, you, sir, are a ranting idiot. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. I want a t-shirt that says, 
beware of the ranting idiot. So I'm obviously in my ranting idiot mode. But uh, let me try to throw a couple of things out there and calm it down. There's this usual predictable rush of the ill-informed, illiterate commentators when they saw this NFL athlete beat his, apparently, more than one son. Uh, Irrational. It's an irrational uh, thing that he did. How does he get to a place where he thinks this is productive behavior? But the uh, the media had this predictable rush. They're they're illiterate, but that doesn't stop them. They run to Proverbs, and um, and they're going to quote Proverbs now. Now, why? Do you think it's because they think Proverbs has wisdom? No. They're so uninformed as to, uh, on biblical concepts and biblical um meanings that they are almost completely and totally wrong in everything they do. They are completely and totally wrong. Never almost. They're always wrong. It's not a surprise. So (coughs) here's what they wanted to quote today, and I'll just read it for you so you don't have to look it up, because I wrote it all down here. Save a little time, just in case I went too long. Oops. Here's what they mostly want to quote. They want to quote Proverbs 13.24. And that's, this is what it says. He that spares the rod hates his son. But he that loves his son chastens him promptly. Now, let me pick out a word there. Now you notice how far off the path we're going to get. Rod. They have no idea what that means. Let me read it again. He that spares the rod hates his son, but he that loves his son chastens him promptly. They also brought up Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction, notice the trend here, the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And then Proverbs 23:14. Thou shalt thou shalt beat him with the rod. Now this is the one that they took the most joy out of completely, think of the word carefully, misrepresenting. There we go. Thou shalt beat him with a rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. That last one should have just immediately triggered something to you. In case you don't have the correct meaning of those verses, which is very common and most likely. And, of course, the willfully ignorant, but nonetheless pompous East Coast media immediately read those verses and then called for the Bible to be removed and passed away. They they see the Bible as an archaic, hate-filled, savage book written by superstitious primitives, and they want it purged from today's, uh, from their so-called enlightened culture. It's the same dance, the same song, it's the same singers every time. But this time, it just kind of made me mad. I don't know why. It kind of fits in. You'll see, I hope. To Jacob's limp, Joshua's lament, Moses' refusal to uh, circumcise his sons. Okay, first and foremost, Proverbs 23, 14 should have made everyone, let me read it again to you, it should have made everyone understand that something powerful is going on here. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Okay? 
what does the who delivers souls from hell? If you beat somebody, are you going to beat them out of hell? That's the I'm going to beat the hell out of him, right? Is that possible? It's not possible. How are you delivered out of hell? The rod delivers you. So now we're in a question of what does the word rod mean in that sentence? I'll read it again. Did you assume that the rod was a method of beating? Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. By the way, that word beat means as many, many things. It can mean uh, uh, to clap your hands. It's a weapon of war. It is a small stick. Many meanings of it. But clearly the one, it has to have a direct connection to Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can deliver one's soul from hell. Psalm 23, 4, thy rod and thy staff shall comfort me. Christ is clearly portrayed there. He is the great Sabbath rest in whom we find comfort. So the rod delivering from hell is certainly something to do with Christ as he is the only one who can deliver souls from hell. The word rod in scripture, as I said, it can be a weapon of war, an implement of guidance, a symbol of kingship or judgment or priesthood. Does the word rod mean to beat a four-year-old irrationally almost to a point of, of mutilation? I saw the pictures. Christ will rule with a rod of iron, Revelation 19.15. In context, when you study the word rod there and the word rule, it refers to him feeding the meaning is to feed and to shepherd the nations towards the truth. So uh, I have to now decide whether beat is the appropriate word. And what does it mean when it is, has this Christ element to it? Rule implies feeding, something he did and, and will do. You have the feeding of the four and the feeding of the five thousand. I, I heard a very interesting little tricky joke here recently. A guy said that um, for $50, he was an older man like me, $50 bet he would drop down and and, root and do between three and 400 push-ups in less than 10 minutes. And everybody wanted to pay him. And of course, what he's going to do is do between three and 400. So he does, he did five just to make it look good in case they challenged one. Why did that come up? Because I just said between four and five thousand. Actually it's four thousand and five thousand, two separate cases. God, Christ, same thing, fed people. So when he says he will rule, that means he will feed and shepherd. Now he has a raw. And it is an iron rod, which means that it is a singular truth there. Now, what is the singular truth? Make the, ap the Christological application of the rod, realizing it has a basic meaning. I'm not de debating that. But it has this Christological application, which means it has a deeper meaning that portrays Christ. 
understanding that the remove uh, Christ from the meaning um, is not going to you're, you're going to have a misunderstanding of the of what the Bible is trying to say. So if I remove the truth of Christ from a child, that's going to do what to the child? If, if the child does not, if you have a child, if that child does not know the truth of Christ, then that child will go into foolishness and to corruption. Remember, Jesus Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. Proverbs is filled with portraits of Christ. Trying to understand the Old Testament apart from its pictures of Christ is total failure. So now Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof which is to rebuke. The rod and reproof give wisdom. The truth of Jesus Christ gives wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. If the child does not know who Christ is, expect shame. The truth of Christ is Godhood. Rebuking thoughts otherwise is loving a child with wisdom. To not teach a child of Christ is to hate that child. See how I've rearranged it, I guess. A child without the truth of Christ will go into corruption. Beating a four-year-old senseless is not in the Bible. Only people that cannot find Christ in the Old Testament will think so. They cannot and they will not find Christ. They will think Christ-less thoughts. And so they will rush to the microphone or to the newsprint, and that's what you will get, Christlessness. While I'm on this subject, um, this came up in a similar vein. The brother of a well-known radio commentator has written a book. And he intends to defend the resurrection of Christ. I applaud him. Good for him. And as the author is an attorney, he's going to approach it from uh, his attorney's side of things, a, a legal perspective. And that's natural. And he's certainly qualified. Having said that, I'm fairly certain that his book uh, is going to do its best to present a defense that's honoring to Christ. I haven't read it. I just heard him interviewed. I recognized that he cared. But he said something that struck me. He said that he intended to emphasize the accounts of the witnesses. And what he meant by that is many, many people saw Christ resurrected. And he was going to go through their accounts, their first-person accounts, and he was going to uh, analyze them and present a defense that Christ, in fact, resurrected. And that's fine. It's not a new approach. Many, many such books. And I wished, however, for a different book. I wish that he, instead of emphasizing the accounts of the witnesses, that he emphasized what? The Godhood of Christ. That he said, Christ is God, first and foremost. I wanted Someone to emphasize the omniscience, the knowing of all things while Christ is on the cross and at his resurrection. That, by the way, is the theme of John's gospel. Because, um, you see, Christ's divinity is revealed by his resurrection. When he resurrects, that means that he's God. 
it, if you want to think of it as a vindication or an authentication of his claim, then that's perfectly acceptable. When he resurrects, then his what he said about himself is obviously true. His claim that he and the Father are one, that they are there's a sameness, that is now true because of his resurrection. John 14.10 Christ brought forceful attention to his coming resurrection. He talked about it constantly. Three such places for the internet audience. John 2.19, Matthew 39-40, John 11.25. Those are three prominent places. But he constantly talked about his coming resurrection. Ask why? What was it about his resurrection that was going to be so important? And Paul says, without his resurrection, the Holy Spirit through Paul, there's none saved. He's right about that. But I'll I'll explain why. Because he is God, we are saved. Without his deity, there is no salvation. Also, without his deity, there is no resurrection either. It's a natural event, Acts 2, 24 through 32. That is a place, by the way, I can't say this enough, where this word appears. Oops. Uh, and I'm going to do my best. That's not two words. It's one word in Acts 2, 24 through 32. Jesus God. There's no hyphen. There's no comma. It's one word in there. And the Bibles that are translated correctly translate that just exactly as I wrote it. Jesus God. Usually it's all capitalized. So it looks like this. And that's a very important aspect of uh, Acts 2, to find that word and to understand why it's written that way. The writer of Acts, through the Holy Spirit, knew that Jesus God is exactly what it says. Okay. It's a natural event. Jesus God cannot be held by death. It is impossible. It's impossible. He will resurrect himself. He has the power to resurrect himself. It's one of the distinctions between your resurrection, which is through his power, and his resurrection. You cannot resurrect yourself. I cannot resurrect myself. We require that he do it for us. He, in fact, however, is God and can and does resurrect himself and us. He's God in the flesh. He's the holy thing. Death and hell cannot contain God. Death and hell is a limited place. God is an infinite being. He won't fit. His resurrection by his will within the triune Godhood was a foregone conclusion. Does that make sense? I don't need the account of the witnesses. Once I figure out who he really is, once I know that he's God, I don't need any witnesses. Because I know something is going to happen. I know that he is going to resurrect himself. That's easily foreseen and 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 certain. It's a result that is foreseen easily and with certainty. And though the accounts of the human witnesses are valuable, who are they the most valuable to, by the way, the accounts of the human witnesses? Are they the most valuable to us? We didn't know the human witnesses. We didn't see the human witnesses. We have a book that writes it down. We know the book is inspired. So we believe the human witnesses. But the accounts of the human witnesses are most valuable and most comforting to the human witnesses. 
And they're not to be emphasized. I can figure out that Christ is resurrected once I know he's God. Does that make sense? The truth that Christ is God is the proper point of emphasis. That makes his resurrection inevitable. Our human testimony has not been considered. Another noteworthy comment that boiled up now, got me into this mood today. I know you're thinking, when are you going to start the lecture? i got a few more pages here. I'll get through the lecture in just a minute. This might be the longest I've ever gone without starting the lecture. I'm on page eight, haven't started the lecture. A new record, maybe. I'll have to look back. Another noteworthy comment boiled up to the surface that fits this entire subject, and it's from the Archbishop of Canterbury. I don't know if you know who he is. But uh, he is a prominent religious leader, I would say, in all of Europe, but certainly in the United Kingdom, which is still the United Kingdom, by the way. That's uh, kind of surprised me, I have to admit. I thought that Scotland uh, would move on. But apparently they saw the benefit to stay. It uh, did surprise me. But uh, the point is, the Archbishop of Canterbury said this. He said he has consistent and serious doubts about God's existence. Isn't that lovely? How's that for inspiring confidence in your parishioners, huh? This is the head of the English church, essentially, and he's saying, I'm not so sure God exists, and I have really serious, constant doubts about it. Please give me more money. I found that to be fascinating. And if I were there, I would have just raised my hand and said, uh, Mr. Arch, maybe I could call him Archie. I don't know what I'd call him, but it was something inappropriate, I'm sure, you know. An American citizen. I would ask immediately if the Archbishop had any constant and serious doubts about his own existence. People tell me all the time, I doubt the existence of God. And I say, do you doubt your own existence? Because it would only be logical, right? If you're going around doubting existence, why not start with you? Is anybody in this room, don't raise your hands, never raise your hand ever at this lecture. Never, never, never. But raise your hands now. That's not to be done. Don't do it. Trying to help you here. But does anybody here doubt their own existence? I have yet to meet somebody that doubts their own existence. Every time I ask somebody, do you exist? They all answer yes. And I can project onto you because I believe I exist. Therefore, I think you believe you exist. See how that works? I believe that I have self-awareness. So therefore, I believe that you have self-awareness. Self-identity. Personhood. No one here, I'm going out on a limb, doubts that they exist. But I also know that everybody here at some point has doubted that God exists. That's illogical. If you're going to doubt existence, start doubting your own. And I doubt that the archbishop doubts that he exists. In fact, I know he doesn't. Asking the origin of our own, your own existence, is usually a very good first question when you get confronted with, does God exist? See, you ask these kinds of questions. Where does my, where does our existence come from when you're starting to say, 
Do I exist? Because you will answer, yes, I exist. So where does your existence come from? How did you get existence? Did you go to the existence store? What is existence made out of? I need to find existence. Can I sell my existence to somebody else? Can I go out and find existence and sell it to somebody who doesn't exist? Okay, those are all silly questions, right? It's like, is yellow square? But where does our existence come from? That's my point here, trying to be a little bit goofy to get the point across. Hopefully it works. When you ask that, that will lead to whom, from whom does all existence come from? In other words, you conclude that you exist, you have to have a source for your existence. Who is the source for your existence? How does he transfer existence? How did I, how did it occur? Existence is a non-material substance. How did it come in contact with a physical substance and have an impact on it? From whom does all existence come? Which moves you on to the immortal characteristics of existence. You'll discover if you ask these kinds of questions, you'll figure out that you're immortal. That you cannot be subject to a physical process, which is death. Your existence demands that it be continued existence, which then will transition to this final question for you. Why does God leave our free will intact? So I'm very disappointed in the Archbishop of Canterbury. He didn't ask any of those valuable questions. Instead, he said something that he couldn't even defend to a sixth grade philosophy student. Which I have serious doubts about the existence of God constantly. And I might also suggest to the Archbishop that he begin studying with particle physicists. Because it is very, very rare to find a particle physicist who has abandoned... I'm sorry, let me say that better. It's very, very rare to find a particle physicist who has not abandoned atheistic, monistic philosophy... Particle physicists no longer ask if God exists. They figured it out. And coupled with the Archbishop's elementary thinking, and I'm sure I'll get mail. I have some people in England that don't like me already. And I appreciate the people that don't like me that listen. I appreciate the people that do like me and listen much more, though. I will say that. That's just basic human nature for me. But coupled with the Archbishop's elementary thinking uh, came the media's regurgitation when they heard him of Mother Teresa. I don't know if you're familiar. Mother Teresa had like-minded thoughts. Things she wrote while discouraged. Things she wrote while she was surrounded by death and misery and the suffering of innocent children. She went down there and, and worked with the, uh, the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. Which is why all of this came up this week in case you were wondering how I got here today. The atheist uh, media gets outright gleeful when they find weakness in faithful people, and they pounce on it at every opportunity. And I repeat this question all the time. Why do the, the evolutionary monists, those who believe that you're going to cease to exist as a result of your physical death. 
Why do they want everyone to believe that? They want everyone to believe that. Why? They want, they want their purposelessness and their despair to be the norm. Their hopelessness to be what everyone thinks. Why? You answer that question and you're going to have a great deal of wisdom that you might not have had when you came here today or listened today. Anyway, Mother Teresa and the Archbishop both, as do many others, fell into the same old trap. That of witnessing the mass suffering and injustice of this uh, sin-drenched world and finding such as evidence that God has either uh, left his creation on its own or, uh, by the way, if he has left the creation, if he started it and walked away from it, what is he? Yeah, he's evil. You just called him evil for doing so. Because what has it become? It's become this deteriorating, like I said, sin-drenched mess. So when you say that he has abandoned his creation, that's calling him evil. Or they call him proactively evil, actually hovering over his creation and causing all the evil personally. Everything that is evil, he is directly causing because he's evil. Or God does not exist. That's where you end up. He has either uh, left his creation or he is proactively evil in it, or he does not exist. That's the trap. And if God does not exist, then what else doesn't exist? Besides you. If, if only evil exists, because that's what would happen, right? It's evolutionary philosophy. If God does not exist, then goodness does not exist. All that there would be and all that there is is evil continually only. So instead, ask this, is there any goodness? Just like asking yourself, do I exist? Ask yourself, is there any goodness? Do you know any goodness? You all know goodness. You've all seen goodness. Where does goodness come from? Wrong question. Same as existence. From whom does existence come? From whom does goodness come? Goodness comes from God. Jesus God. Jesus Christ is God. Okay, so I wasted all that time on that because there are a lot of questions on it this week, so I said that I would do it. Just know one thing. When you see that stuff come up all the time, there is a way to destroy it. It is a little tiny paper mache boat. You have the USS Ronald Reagan right here. And that doesn't even begin to describe. Okay, no time now for the Korah Rebellion or the parable of the buried talent. Next week. So what I want to do is give you some more thoughts on Jacob's lament, Moses' circumcision of his sons and Joshua's lament and the beautiful garment. Back we go. Why does Jacob limp? That was the question. We said, why does Moses get stopped by God under threat of death because of circumcision? So I'm going to just skip all of that and go right to circumcision. And then Joshua... God comes to him, Christ comes to him, at Jericho, I have this lament, the dead 36, 
the beautiful garment. The question becomes again, why does he limp? How does Moses and Joshua help me understand why he limps? What's the purpose and the meaning of the limp? Okay. Said before, I'll say it again. Jacob's limp is proof of something, evidence of something. Not just for Jacob. Every day after he wrestled with Christ, he limped. And he knew that it meant something, and I believe he knew what it meant. Joshua's beautiful garment is evidence of something. And I believe it's obvious in the weeks to come as we go through the next couple of battles where Joshua is involved and Israel is involved, we're going to find out that the beautiful garment and Jacob's limp have a relationship, as does the circumcision that was uh, that occurred on the sons of Moses. In Jacob's case, he says definitively something. After he wrestles with Jesus Christ, he says this, I have seen the face of God and lived. What's the implication? How is it that I saw the face of God and survived? Because if you see the face of God and you're a sinful creature, and we all are, what should happen to you? Poof. That is why they tied a rope around the leg of the high priest, sent him into the Holy of Holies. Because if he didn't do his job right, we're yanking him out of there, because that's where the Shekinah glory is, and nobody's going in there. You better have the right incense. You better have the right blood. You better know what you're doing to go into the presence of God. You go in there with the wrong garment, what happens to you? You're cast out. You have to have the right garment. You have to have the right, the blood of Christ, right? With that? Jacob says, I have seen the face of God and lived. That means he must have the right covering. Somehow. And proof of that is Jacob's limp. Remember, Jacob hung on to Christ through the darkness. So think about what that means. He wasn't wrestling him in the daytime. He's wrestling him at night. So he holds on to him in the darkness, and he's clinging to this blessing. He wants to be blessed. And the blessing, of course, is salvation. So he's holding on for salvation, clinging to the blessing that is a salvation in the darkness. Make the obvious application. The darkness represents what here? Physical death. And he's clinging to salvation, to be pulled out of physical death. He's clinging to resurrection, isn't he? And proof of all of this is this limp. Jacob's limp is evidence that Jacob could have been incapacitated at any instant. While he is wrestling with them, why does God, why does Jesus Christ wrestling with Jacob not incapacitate him right off the bed? He waits for all of the end of the darkness, and that's when the limp occurs. The touching of Jacob's hip and the shrinking and the, now the limp. See, the, the, that's a key question. The key que- that's the most obvious of the obvious question, mostly. But why did God wait to strike Jacob's hip? Could have done it in the first ten seconds. Let's imagine you. I don't know if you wrestled in high school. I did. 
I figured out I was much better if I outweighed the other guy significantly, by the way. That was just a... I'm going out on a wrestling match, and I know that I've got somebody that can outmaneuver me, but I am much stronger than him. I had a particular strategy. What was it? Get that guy completely immobilized in the first period. I'm not going to run this out. I'm still much the same way. I'm quite formidable. If I used to tell my high school kids they'd get up and had a really difficult team one one year, and they. I said, okay, what we're going to do is you eight or nine guys are going to go over there. I'm going to stand over here. You're going to rush me, and I'm going to kill six or seven of you, and I'll leave two witnesses to scare the kids coming up. That's how it's going to go. And if I'm unable to do that, then um, you will be coach, and I'll be gone. But I think I'm going to win. And who wants to be the witnesses? Who wants to go first? The way I approached coaching. That was a long time ago, back when Lincoln had just been assassinated. I know. Schools were different. That is, unfortunately, exactly how I did it, though. I'm, I'm still formidable in a phone booth. So I'm going to end that contest as quickly as I can. Why didn't Christ end that? He's omnipotent God. Why does he allow this wrestling match to go all night? What's he doing? Could he have ended it at any time? Yes, but he doesn't. What's the point? He obviously wants it to go for a long time. For whose sake? For Jacob's sake. See, the only possibility is that Christ is clinging to Jacob. It's the height of folly to think that us puny humans can cling to the almighty, infinite God for any length of time, much less all night long. Jacob is the weakling in the story. People will read the story and they will actually say something like this to me, which is so frustrating. They will say, wow, that Jacob hung on to Christ all night long. What are you thinking? Go work for the media you're thinking like that. It's not hard to bring all that, or not easy to bring all that back. That's kind of a professional thing. Jacob is the weakling in the story. The opposite of what most think. The exact opposite. It's not surprising. Jacob's limp then is a reminder to Jacob that he was not holding on ever. Does that make sense? Because he was never holding on the entire time. He's not in the match. This isn't an equal fight. He's never successful in anything. He's not, there's not a chance he's holding on. And the limp is a reminder that he's not holding on. Remember, what's his name? It is, what does Jacob mean? That's your first most important clue. It means heel holder. He's the one. His whole name means the holder honor. He's in a wrestling match and he never holds on ever. Not for an instant. That's the point. Do not read that story and think Jacob is holding on to God. That is ridiculous and indefensible. Irreverent. Disrespectful to God. 
So, Jacob's limp is a reminder that Jacob was never holding on. Because it's impossible for us. We have great weakness. We are so weak, we can't hold on to anything. Much less our own salvation. We cannot hold on to Christ. He must hold on to us. If he didn't hold on to us, none of us would hold on and nobody would be saved. We are the lame, blind, naked, wretched. That's us. We're wrestling. And we're blind. And we're lame. We're weak. We're naked. We're stupid. And our, or your plan is to hold on to Christ for your salvation? That's your... De- that's, no. Christ is God. What do you think... You, what are you thinking? That you could out-wrestle God? I'm going to pin him? Boy, he's really close. Jacob almost had him there. Just get rid of that. That's East Coast media type thinking. That is Christ-less thinking. The limp then is what? You've now solved it, right? What is the limp? It is evidence of what? I will read. I will write it on the board. The limp is Jacob after that knew something. Every time he took a step, he knew that he got his salvation how? By out wrestling God for it? No. How did he get his salvation? He knew that it was a blood covering and that it was pure grace. could do nothing. The limp then is blood covering of grace in opposition to the man-conceived notion that you can overcome Jesus, see? You can overcome Yeshua, which means salvation. You can overcome death, darkness, by your own wrestling skill. If that's your plan, you're in a whole lot of heap of big wampum trouble. That is the plan of almost every human being on the world today, unfortunately. Now, if you got that, now you can go to this beautiful covering here. Beautiful garment of Joshua. And you can look at circumcision. What did Zipporah say to Moses? She screamed at him at the end of that circumcision. She screamed, you are a husband of blood to me. So that ties the three of them together for you. And uh, now, once you've got those, you can go back and read Romans chapter 9 correctly. Let's rise and be dismissed.